0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 42 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, with schools set to reopen on Monday, there's professional advice on how families can minimize virus-related risks that this will introduce. Actuarial body Panda wants government's official coronavirus mortality modelers to share their assumptions after projections have proved consistently inflated. Something else that we share is the intensely personal experience of living with cancer during COVID-19 with our business colleague Chris Bateman. And we'll hear from New York University Professor Scott Galloway who is proposing a Corona Corps of young Americans who will help fight the virus in Africa. First, in today's COVID-19 headlines, although globally confirmed coronavirus infections are still rising, deaths from the virus appear to be on a distinctive declining curve. Monday's worldwide total of just over 3,000 mortalities is down almost two-thirds on the daily record of 8,400 deaths that was recorded in mid-April. The hottest spots have also shifted away from Europe and increasingly the United States, with Brazilian deaths of 732 on Monday, fractionally higher than those recorded in the world's worst-hit nation, the U.S. It now looks pretty clear that America is past the worst with its daily mortality trend in decline since April the 21st when it peaked at 2,600. That's more than three times the current level. The UK, which has the second highest mortalities after the US, is also well past its worst, with Monday's 111 deaths below a tenth of the daily peak. That was also recorded in mid-April. On the other side, apart from Brazil, countries now experiencing a rising mortality trend are India, Russia and Peru. With the South African coronavirus mortality slowing in recent days, calls are growing for an updated response to projections that deaths will end up more than 50 times the current total. On Monday, South Africa's daily death toll was 22. That's the lowest in a week and down by more than half on a recent peak. That took the country's total mortalities to just over 700 thus far, well below last week's forecast from government that deaths will reach 40,000. Panda, the group of actuaries questioning official mortality projections that started at 375,000, is calling for an urgent opening of the calculations to public scrutiny. They say the latest forecast, made just last week, is still at least four times above the likely end figure. Panda says such exaggerated projections panicked government into taking actions which have led to unnecessary damage to the economy and will result in millions of people losing their jobs. An interview coming up on the topic with Panda's coordinator, Nick Hudson. According to the South African Association of Freight Forwarders, Importers are facing a 1.4 billion rand bill in storage and demurrage costs accumulated during the 27 days of Level 5 lockdown as more than 20,000 containers piled up in storage facilities. The association's chief executive, David Logan, says during this period containers could not be legally delivered and that many of his 294 members, which between them manage around 70% of the containers moving into and out of South Africa, now face bills running into millions. Discovery hosts a Sending Our Children Safely Back to School webinar at noon Wednesday as a public service ahead of next week's reopening of classrooms. Attendance is free with pre-registration at discovery.co.za. More on the topic coming up in the next few minutes with widely published University of KZN Professor Rifelwe Masakela, one of South Africa's leading pediatric pulmonologists. It's a pleasure to be talking to Professor Refilwe Masikela at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. You're head of the pediatrics and child care unit at the university and a specialist in medical issues relating to them. And that's on all of our minds this week with the imminent returning to school. Perhaps you can maybe address the first question to parents of South Africa. Is it safe to send their kids to school?
1: If I have to give a short answer, the answer was, I think, if you look, relatively speaking, for children, it would be safe for them to go to school. And then I'll premise that with a little bit of the evidence around why I'm saying so. If we look at a population level and we look at the number of infections in the population, children make up a very, very small proportion of people who get infected with COVID-19. And this is not unique to South Africa. If you look at the data from Europe, from the US, from China, about somewhere between 1% and 6%, if you are looking at different studies of children, would get infected with COVID-19. So proportionally speaking, children make up a very small minority of infections. And If we look at transmission, because I think that's what parents would worry about, is if my child goes to school, will they get infected or will they infect another child? Now, if we look at children and their ability to transmit the virus to other people, children seem to not be as efficient at doing that. And this is based on data from China where they looked at clusters of people that got infected and they wanted to see whether the child was the one responsible for infecting other people. And this only happened in about 10 percent of cases. And we also have seen in data from Sweden where the schools never actually closed during the pandemic and also New Zealand, that children are not very efficient at spreading the virus to each other as well as to adults who we're more worried about. I think there's a concern as well from the teacher's side whether they will get infected. So children are not really efficient at doing this in terms of spreading the virus.
0: Do we know why?
1: Well, I think one of the nice things about being a scientist is this disease is only around for the last six months. So we have had some, we know there's some data that shows us that children lack, they have a very low level of a specific receptor that is required in order for the virus to enter into into the body. So they have a very low level of that receptor. And children's immune systems are very robust because they have lots of infections around. We know that this is a season of viruses, influenza, rhinoviruses, We have also other circulating coronaviruses, so their immune system seems to be more robust and maybe because there's competition for entry into the immune system, it seems that children are slightly more efficient at fighting off the virus and actually not actually acquiring it. And there's also some data showing that a lot of children, even if they do get infected, they have a very asymptomatic course, So their immune system seems to be very efficient at fighting off the virus.
0: Being South Africans, we always have a look at where we might be exposed that other countries aren't. And with HIV-infected children, yes. would they also have these defense mechanisms?
1: Well, I think the critical issue around the HIV-infected population is if a child is infected and they are on treatment and their immune system has reconstituted and their viral load is suppressed, they should be at relatively low risk of getting infected. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data around the specific population group, but we know that from other, there's now a study looking at in New York where they looked at children who have cancer, for example, who have low immune systems because of suppression from cancer therapy. And they found that these children did not seem to be at significantly increased risk, and they just had the general overall population risk of getting infected with the virus. So, of course, we don't have any hard data in this population, but we think that if the immune system has reconstituted, the person has a good suppressed viral load, and their immune system is normal, it should be relatively safe for those children to go to school.
0: As you said earlier, as a scientist, uh, this is an interesting opportunity because it is brand new and we're all learning as we go along. What are the big things that we've learned from international experiences that are now shaping the approach that South Africa is taking towards the coronavirus?
1: Well, I think what has been very interesting about this virus is our experience with other respiratory viruses is that they usually attack the young and the very old. So what's been different about this virus is it It's done something very unusual. It's protected children, which other viruses don't seem to do. We're learning as we're going along, and as the data is coming along, it's quite interesting to see that for once, children seem to be a protected population, whereas in other viruses, it's usually the contrary. And I think in terms of the south, the global south, unfortunately, the virus is hitting us at a very different time to the north, where we also have our influenza season and there will be lots of other viruses circulating in our population. We have very little data around tuberculosis, for example, HIV, all the other things that are more common in the South African context. And we will have to look closely at the data to see if there's any signals, if there's any higher risk in these specific population groups.
0: So far, though, it seems to be so good. One of the theories, and I'd love to get your view on this, is that In developing countries like ours, we're much more exposed in our younger ages to all kinds of germs, whereas in developed countries, they're almost uh, sanitized in a way.
1: Well, I think that's a very uh, interesting assumption. And I think there's been also people looking at the role of BCG. That is the vaccine that we all get from birth when we are uh, to protect us from getting severe tuberculosis. And there's been some postulates whether this may not be protecting people in the global south because a lot of us do get vaccinated. But I think it's an interesting postulation. It's not really been proven, but I think it's one of those things that we'd have to tease out and see if this is truly what is protecting people, relatively speaking, from those in the global north. Um, And of course, you're right, We have many more circulating uh, infections, higher burden of infectious diseases compared to the north. So it is an opportunity to see whether what the impact would be in, for example, Africa.
0: We've had on this program interviews with two BCG related professors, one from the New York Institute of Technology, where the original collaborate or correlation was brought forward. And then, another, that was with Professor Gonzalo. And then another one with, uh, Andreas Diakon from University of Stellenbosch, who's busy doing an investigation or a test right now on whether BCG is protective. Of course, we have to wait for the data to come through and science does take its time. But your thoughts on this, is there enough to take BCG seriously as a, as a potential shield?
1: Well, I think being a pulmonologist, my message would be very clear to everybody. Everybody in South Africa should get BCT vaccination at birth. So we all should be getting it. And it is part of our immunization schedule. But I think it's a very interesting postulate and it will be very interesting to get the data to see if it's really borne out. I think at the moment, as you see, It's all suppositions, it's all things that people think may be explaining a lot. So we'll have to see, and uh, time will tell whether this is truly the case or if it's it's not. So we'll have to wait and see what is the outcome.
0: Initially, there were projections that South Africa would lose 375,000 people to coronavirus. Then it's been brought down to 40,000, and now the actuaries at Panda say, it'll probably be only 10,000 or even less. Why did we get it so wrong, do you think, in the initial? And it wasn't just us. It was the Imperial College in London who had 550,000 Brits who were supposed to die and 2.2 million Americans and so on. Why do you think that that our assumptions were so off-beam to begin with?
1: Well, I think the one thing about modeling is it's it's usually data-based. So unless you've got data, you can only make suppositions, correct? And a lot of the modeling data was all based on unmitigated viral. If we just let the virus run its course in the population, which has not happened. The whole world went into lockdown at some stage to try to mitigate against the virus. So a lot of the modeling data was, if you look at that imperial paper, was based on whether we did nothing. We just lived our daily lives. Nothing changed. We still went to clubs and school and bars and nothing was changed. So, of course, if you put in mitigation strategies like a hard lockdown and you keep people away from each other, that will have impact. And of course, you will have seen that the South African data, we have managed to slow down the, the infections in the population because we've been in a lockdown situation. And it's only once you get data that you can maybe more reliably predict what the numbers will be but of course it's a numbers game and you know you have to rely on the data in data out and of course the models you know speak for themselves it was the same in the U.S. the same here you have to look at what data you're getting so that you can better predict what the outcome would be in terms of mortalities etc.
0: So one has to be nimble and and adjust as the uh, data comes in The wearing of masks, we know it's a disease that is passed on through droplets. That surely also has to have had a huge impact on what would otherwise have happened.
1: Exactly. I think the package of the mitigation strategies is social distancing, wearing of masks, using strategies to hand wash, surface cleaning, all those strategies because none of them would work on their own. Then every incremental thing you introduce it would reduce the infection rate. So masks are a critical component as part of the package of social distancing and all the other measures. And if you look at what the models predict, if you looked at the data, the more things you put into your model as mitigation strategies, the better would be your outcome. So I think that's that's not rocket science. That's easily explainable. If you try to mitigate and your strategies are more, your impact will be greater.
0: And as far as parents are concerned, once their children do go back to school on Monday, is there anything they can do to mitigate their exposure to this uh, COVID-19?
1: I've said this over and over again, masks, masks, masks. And I think to also very importantly, teach our children around hand hygiene. And I think what is more important is when they go back to school, for example, after they've had breaks, and also the school itself, for them to clean surfaces regularly, for example, when there's been interaction with doors, toys, every day these surfaces should be cleaned properly. But I think parents should tell their children about good hand hygiene practices, cough etiquette, that people shouldn't just be coughing without protecting other people, and of course masks, and most importantly, if your child is not is not well is feeling unwell please keep them at home because then you don't want them to spread viruses to other children at school
0: welcome again to nick hudson he's the coordinator of what is called panda very well known now pandemics data and analysis catchy name nick uh, but an even More catchy issue is the open letter that you've written to Professor Juliet Pulliam from Sakima. What exactly is Sakima?
2: They're one of the many groups that are uh, advising our government and building models that uh, the government uses to estimate the future disease burden of COVID-19 in the country to try and work out how many hospital beds and ventilators and so on are needed.
0: And they came up with a number, which has been widely quoted now, of 40,000. It seemed to be... Lower than the initial estimates of the mortalities in South Africa?
2: Slightly lower, yes, about a tenth.
0: Seriously? Were some people believing that we'd have 400,000 deaths in South Africa?
2: It was around 375,000, if I remember correctly, Alec. And um, I think this is what scared the living daylights out of our state president. And uh, when he saw forecasts that entailed, you know, two and a half million shortage of, of hospital beds, I think that's what caused us to enter into the the state of disaster and eventually the lockdown. Um, And of course, over time, those models have been significantly reduced to this current 40,000 level, which we still believe is a drastic overestimate. Now, our, our view is that the actual format of these models, the structure of these models is wrong and has been proven to be wrong every day for months now. This model class should not be used at all. And we've said that. We were we were involved in the Minister McKeezer's modelling symposium two weeks ago. After all the models presented, we made our case for why these models are wrong. We wrote an article that uh, you very kindly promoted on your website, and that has been very widely read, pointing out very specific problems with the models. And to date, we've had no engagement from any of the parties involved answering to these questions that we've raised which is, in our mind, an admission of guilt. They know. They know that their models are not appropriate. Nick, just go back a little. How
0: did they come to a figure of 375,000?
2: The way these models work, Alec, is that you you build a very complicated exponentiating state model, which is something that kind of treats people as random variables, and you, you go from a state of susceptible, exposed, infected, and then either recovering or dying, So they are very complicated models that have to be calibrated in some way. You need to make assumptions. And those assumptions then get built on in a very highly exponentiated way. Now, what what an exponentiated growth involves is that each day you get a constant percentage more of cases or debts or whatever the case may be. And that results in it's like compound growth in money, you know, compounding of interest that results in very rapid escalation of the number of cases and deaths and so on. Now, that simply has not been observed anywhere in the world. You know, normally the exponentiating phase, if there really is one at all, is very short and then the growth rate of cases starts dropping off. And that's uh, this is not something that's just been observed recently. This this was observed as early as February. In, In no country in the world have we had this kind of continuous exponentiation. That's the first problem. The second problem, they make an assumption about the number of people who are susceptible to dangerous infection. And the typical assumption being made, as far as we can tell, is that 100% of people are susceptible. But in the wild, in the real world, the actual story is, is much lighter. You have 10%, maybe 20%, as high as 25%, but that makes an awful difference. If most people in a population are able to, what we refer to, what we call bounce the disease, in other words, they just don't get affected by it. If they get exposed, they get their bodies deal with the infection very easily. If most people are in that category, then they'll never test positive after exposure. They won't have positive antibody tests or positive virology tests. And if you have 30, 50, 80 percent of your population in that category, it makes a big difference. And, and we think the numbers are large like that. We've got every single population in the world contains a lot of people who are simply resistant to uh, being infected. And that, that is a robust finding. It's very hard. You, you won't find a single data point refuting that, and yet the models continue to use these very high susceptibility rates. It's, so
0: it's, let's it's, just it's go back. The very first assumption here, as you say, was around 400,000. That's now been brought down to 40,000. It sounds a bit like in the UK, where they had a 550,000 projection from the Imperial College, which was brought down to now, well, significantly lower than that. But you believe that the 40,000 is still too high. Why? And and what is your number?
2: Yeah, the 40,000 would make South Africa one of the worst affected nations in the world. When you look at Okay so the first thing to understand here is that you're dealing with a disease that has a very strong age related effect. So in countries like in Western Europe, you where you have a lot of old people, Italy, Spain, Belgium, you know the, the death rates as a percentage of population are higher than in countries that have younger populations like ours. So the first that's the first very important feature that should be observed is with a younger population we expect to have Fewer deaths per million, okay?
0: Is that not and being observed in that 40,000?
2: No, we don't believe so. That's the first thing that's not been observed. The second thing that's not being observed is when you look at the international experience, developing countries have much lighter experience than developed countries. And we noticed this early on, straight after Italy, hot on the tail of Italy, was, uh, you, you saw Iran starting to erupt with cases and very quickly, within a few days, it became clear that the, the situation there wasn't going to escalate to nearly the levels that Italy got, attained. And I, if I'm not mistaken, it, it, it ended up capping out at about one-eighth the level of deaths per, per, per unit population. We started noticing that and then paying attention as all the, the, the epidemics broke out around the developing world, and what's observed time and time and time and again is that uh, in developing countries there's, there's simply much lighter experience. The way we model this is if we went along on the basis of just the, the age structure of South Africa relative to the worst affected countries in the world. So if we took Belgium as our starting point and then we factored in the age adjustment for South Africa, we come up with roughly 18,000 deaths as our expectation. So already, just using that adjustment, half the level that these these other models have mysteriously all arrived at. Okay, And then we take something off that to reflect the fact that we're similar to Mexico or Russia or the Eastern European countries that we have a developing nation on our hands. And that brings us down to the range of saying, well, not more than 10,000 and possibly a good deal less. It's very simple logic. We're not getting involved in... um, Solving complex systems of differential equations, or pontificating about the number of uh, hospital beds that are going to be needed on Sunday the 23rd, or the color of the grasshopper's nose next door—you know—it's just we're taking a very simple, pragmatic view, comparing it to other countries, and saying, is there any reason to believe that South Africa will behave any differently? We do run a few tests to test whether there is anything unique about South Africa's experience. People were worried about HIV, people were worried about TB. Those were not silly things to be worried about, but there's simple tests you can perform just to see if our epidemic is evolving in a way that's out of the parameters that would be observed from the experience in New York or Belgium, and we just simply do not see them. We see an epidemic that in terms of the, the age of people who are affected and the comorbidities of the people that are affected, It behaves very similarly to what has been observed observed elsewhere.
0: Anybody who's ever looked at the investment uh, scenario will know that it depends on the assumptions that you're putting into your model to what comes out at the end. And clearly what you are attacking here are the assumptions, and you've made your case uh, quite strongly uh, for your assumptions. But if you have a look at where we are at the moment, we've had five days roughly of a similar level of new infections in South Africa,
2: Is this telling us something yet? It's a huge mistake to focus on cases. Most of the infections out there in the wild are never going to be detected. So what you're measuring is not new infections, as you just described it, but new detections. And you could go and measure anywhere in the country right now. You will pick up a certain percentage. Don't know what it is, but a certain percentage of people who are infected. There could well be hundreds of thousands, maybe more than a million cases out there And most of them will just be getting on with their lives. They don't even know that they are infected with the virus. They they might develop antibodies, they might not. You know, it's such a mild infection. For almost all the people, this will be the case. And so this business of trying to chase after the one infection who arrives at the hospital complaining of a, a cough and runny nose and a headache or whatever... Chasing the contacts of that person and trying to catch and prevent the transmission is, is really ludicrous. There's no scientific basis for doing any of that. It was wishful thinking in the beginning and w- once the population exposure has set into reasonable levels, which it clearly has at this point in South Africa, it becomes just farcical. It beggars belief that we even pursue such a, such a lock. So we should
0: be looking at the mortalities presumably.
2: That's the thing to look at, and you, you need to look at that and follow that very carefully. I mean, so far, this disease is behaving just like it has in in other countries, the sub-exponentiating growth in the number of deaths. Our belief is that there's no reason to expect uh, things to evolve differently in South Africa from any other country, and and you look at that, how have they evolved? Well, you get to the peak death situation quite quickly, within a couple of months at, at the most, so... We're look looking at this and saying, sometime this month we'll hit our peak debts. And that's another way in which our very simple, um, logical kind of way of looking at this in light of international experience differs from the, the models. These guys have got these highly evolved, exponentiating models that predict peaks in September, November, far away. And there isn't a single country in the world that's exhibited that kind of pattern. Again, it's this uh, breathtaking failure to, to take a look once you've done all your assuming and your complicated Excel spreadsheets and Python coding and all this kind of stuff and they've built this elaborate mousetrap you know don't you take a step back and compare the results to the rest of the world I mean a very simple thing we've been asking people to do is okay well forget about South Africa let's go and look at a country that's already been through its peak let's go and look at Italy recalibrate your model for Italy or for Spain, okay, and check whether it produces a result that bears some faint resemblance to what actually happened in that country, you know? So take your infection fatality rates, take your susceptibility percentages, take the population structure of Italy, and see whether your model works. And the answer is that they haven't done this. They can't have. If they had done that, they'd be modifying their models, I think they wouldn't wouldn't even be using their models, because those models, I think, are structurally unable to work for this disease.
3: Hi, I'm Chris Bateman. Uh, I'm 63 years old, uh, a journalist by profession, the father of two pre-teenage daughters. I'm a very keen fly fisherman and a relatively recently diagnosed cancer survivor. Which brings me to the first of this three podcast series. My cancer journey began early last November 2019 and I want to share it in the hope that it will inform and support newly diagnosed fellow travellers and their families and help them navigate what can sometimes be tricky and challenging terrain. Uh, Most of all I want to talk about what is an intensely human and vulnerable experience and make it accessible. Um, It's certainly teaching me a very important few lessons, I guess chief of which is that gifts come wrapped in unexpected and strange packages. Uh, To start, I was covering an international emergency medicine conference at Century City near Cape Town last year and about to go into a session on resilience and burnout amongst emergency care workers. Now, the latter is all too common in our trauma-ridden society. So it was fascinating to me to be there. My phone rings just before I go in. And it's an SMS from my sister's golfing buddy, who also happens to be a semi-retired gastroenterologist at Tigerberg Hospital in Cape Town's northern suburbs, where we live. So my heart sinks. It's kind of like, oh yeah, okay. Um, And I'll see the following words. uh, Call me urgently, Estelle. So to explain, let me back up a bit. Uh, A month earlier... I was at a family briar with my sister and brother-in-law and I suffered quite a bad attack of reflux upon swallowing a juicy piece of steak. I wasn't too worried because it had been happening occasionally, several months apart, for about two years. Each time I'd get a constricted painful feeling around my sternum and I'd begin hiccuping quite severely and then I was unable to eat or eat further for quite a bit. And the episode would create thick saliva, the kind you get when you're about to throw up. I wasn't the least bit nauseous. Um, it would pass, and I'd forget about it. I had my anti-reflux pills. Kind of thinking was okay until next time. However, my sister, who's a bit of an intuitive Sanroga, told me she had a gastroenterologist golfing friend. She said to me, "Enough of this nonsense, Chris. I'm going to call her so I can make you so you can make an appointment." So I capitulated, I knew it was overdue. You know, sometimes things just get to a head. The following week, the gastroenterologist Estelle drove around to my doorstep, she happens to live around the corner in Durbanville, and picked me up and helped book me into Tigerberg Hospital. Filled, helped me fill in the medical aid forms, everything. Once in her department, she put me under anaesthetic and performed a gastroscopy and a biopsy. Later, When I came to, she sketched for me the various um, outcome scenarios very thoroughly, including possible cancer diagnosis. Anyway, then she drove me home. To say I felt special would be a bit of an understatement. Okay, so let's fast forward again to the emergency medicine conference and her SMS to me. I called her back and sure enough, she apologetically told me that the biopsy tested positive for esophageal cancer which had developed in what I knew was previously a 2 millimetre hiatus hernia, just at the bottom of the esophagus. She referred me to a bariatric surgeon at Blamöck Netcare Hospital, whom she assured me was, if not the best, certainly among the best. I felt sort of numb, but strangely calm. The first thought that came into my head was, how do I break this to my family and my elderly parents? And then I went into the session, and to my own surprise, I engaged fully and was able to concentrate on the conference session on resilience and burnout. Now, look at those titles, Burnout and Resilience. I mean, it couldn't have been more pertinent to my life context, which had just minutes ago fundamentally changed. You could call it graceful timing. Talking of grace, last year I spent several months interviewing cancer survivors, about 20 of them plus oncology care providers. Anything from uh, oncologists, uh, surgeons, those using symptomatic and palliative care, to psychologists, the full range. Little did I know then that I'd soon join the survivor ranks and be gifted with direct empathy. We talk a lot about empathy, but you know, <laughs> it means you've experienced the same thing the other person has, not just that you are sympathetic. My client was Discovery Health. And I was populating then their Prospective, I think it's still Prospective, Oncology website, whose purpose is very similar to my own sentiments behind this podcast. It's actually a very valuable resort and will be very well worth visiting, I believe. What I learnt from those 20 interviews with the cancer survivors goes directly to the contradictions we experience in life. Uh, The ironic wrapping of gifts, so to speak, that we so often fail to recognise. It also speaks. How opposites literally define one another. I'm sure you've experienced that. Um, To really live, it certainly helps to contemplate the inevitable death. Every one of the fellow cancer survivors I interviewed spoke about how their diagnosis was the biggest gift of their lives. Now, listen to that the biggest gift of their lives. It provided for them new context, perspective, faith, and gratitude. Gratitude, all right? I kid you not. It struck me forcibly then, because the theme was so evident throughout the interviews. Um, But now, I mean, it's literally bowled me over because I have a personal experience of those sentiments. So how do I go about telling my nearest and dearest? How did I do that, given that I had the big C? That was my biggest fear. My kids are 9 and 11, my daughters. My folks are 90 and 89, both in good health, but subject to the maladies and vagaries of old age. I decided to adapt the learnings I'd acquired from the 20 fellow survivors. For example, one theme that came through, take somebody with you when you first speak to your oncologist or your surgeon. Often the shock of the diagnosis is so fresh that you don't absorb everything. And by the way, permission to record the consult um, is readily granted by doctors. Uh, for this very reason, my adaptation in disclosing my cancer diagnosis to my family was simple use key, easily understandable words and repeat them because they're also going to be in that shocked state. And repeat these words often. My five words that I chose were the following it's treatable, curable, stage one, and localized. The reaction of my daughters and wife, whose voices you'll hear in the next podcast, were totally different unexpected and completely endearing. My dad, whose KwaZulu-Natal, somewhat colonial upbringing and love of people, um, has left him with an astonishing memory that can link almost any surname mentioned in his province to a school, university, family, or town. I mean, it's quite amazing to to listen. Um, He listened to me very deeply. Not speaking, just listened. My mum, who's a former nursing sister, whose memory is the polar opposite to my dad's, sobbed and then temporarily forgot. More grace I guess. My chemo treatment began in December 2019. My bariatric surgeon opted for the conservative approach to shrink the tumour which had grown from a mere 2 millimetre hernia in the 6 years since a long forgotten gastroscopy to 5 millimetres. He once still wants good cutting margins for what will be an unavoidable four to six hour keyhole surgery to remove my esophagus and most of my stomach now scheduled for any time between july and september this year i asked my oncologist why such radical surgery is necessary of course you know in the hustle bustle of the chat illustrates my earlier point with the um bariatric surgeon I, i neglected to ask that question so i asked the oncologist And why why does it have to be so radical? And I I wanted to avoid, after the op, having to use a great copper, a good one-liner, dark humor, um, conversation stopper. If somebody suggests something you don't want to do, you simply have to say very truthfully, I'm sorry, I don't have the stomach for this. Anyway, she paused, and he fixed me with a steely glare before replying, Chris, that would be palliative. We are going for a cure. No argument there. Doctors titrate, as in drip feed you information, I've discovered. It's not intentional or confined to any single physician. My experience is this. My generous-hearted gastroenterologist told me that they'd cut some of the stomach out and pull it up to create a new esophagus. Accurate. My oncologist said I'd lose a lot of my stomach. My bariatric surgeon, however, said I'd lose most of it. But... That with vitamin B injections, a totally new diet, and many more small meals, I'd lead a virtually normal life, one that would include fly fishing. I still have a bucket list that includes a week on one of the world's best trout streams in the sweeping valleys of Bartley East. But the road will have many more twists and turns, I'm sure, like the unexpected pulmonary emboli that's blood clots on the lung that my first post chemo CT scan revealed in mid February. It was unexpected by myself but I later discovered common in oncology literature. I spent a week in hospital on blood thinning injections and oral warfarin. Warfarin, as you probably know, is better known as rat poison, but it's a highly effective medicine for blood thickened human health conditions. I'll spare you the obvious jokes involving mice and men. My esophageal tumor has now visibly shrunk or grown, but there is a bit of inflammation, which apparently is expected, but only time will tell though my surgeon believes that inflammation may be masking some shrinkage in fact he's fairly confident it is uh, by the way in case you didn't exactly know like myself the esophagus is the tube linking the throat to the stomach so ok let's put this podcast to bed for now my regular visits to the path lab to have blood drawn have increased uh, that's because it, it enables the, the path um, doctors to adjust my daily warfarin home dosage in addition to the full blood count which reveals the state of my immune system prior to each week's chemo session. They don't want to overload the kidney um, and, and drop my immune system too low. I mean, you know, I think of the coronavirus that's going around right now. So to be honest, I'm not looking forward to a repeat of three months of the fatigue that accompanied my previous nine chemo sessions. It's just not a sort of normal tiredness it's a a tiredness I'd never experienced before and it it does knock you and it certainly makes the workload a little bit more onerous or you know you have to titrate it backwards Um, but then again you know if I look at the wider context of my fellow survivors I got off lightly Um, the people I speak to in the chemo room weekly now um, certainly illustrate that point it gives me time to generate better income which I'm going to need when um, I'm out of action for the op and recuperation at maybe three, three months or so. Here's an irony for you. Last year, um, while interviewing 10 of Discovery's top healthcare brokers, I, was, I listened to many of their stories about how um, this is now in, in relation to dread disease and income protection cover how uh, glowing accounts of clients being awarded millions with cancer diagnoses within months or a few years of taking our policy. True stories, but you know the subs were just out of my own budget reach I decided. It was just a bit too expensive on my budget so <laughs> I'm not going to get into that regret territory. It's a wormhole I'm not going to dive into. Um, it is as it is. So we'll need this extra op time to generate that income Um and uh, I mean, there's always that's the upside, and there always is one. In my next podcast, you'll hear more from our family about how all this has impacted them. The amazingly upbeat and crazy chemo nurses at Blaubeuren Care Hospital, who've impressed the heck out of me, and some more tips on overall self-care. The nursing professionalism I've come across so far, the nursing professionalism, is echoed at private hospitals countrywide. Not to mention, this is important, most hard-pressed public sector tertiary hospitals. I look forward to having you on board again. Until then, this is Chris Baton signing off. Cheers for now.
1: If you travel across Africa, you often come across members of the American Peace Corps, young people who take a year off and do community work. A professor of marketing at New York Stern School of Business, Professor Scott Galloway, has come up with the idea of a corona call, which could use young people wanting to take a year off that would help to fight the coronavirus. He told Bloomberg's Carol Massa and Jason Kelly that it could solve youth unemployment. But first, he commented on what Silicon Valley would look like after the COVID-19 pandemic.
4: I think there's several dimensions there. I think on a a shareholder level, I believe that big tech is going to consolidate or further consolidate the market, take advantage of the stress in the ecosystem, make some great acquisitions uh, of companies that are going to be on sale. And Facebook and Google will emerge from this pandemic. Instead of controlling $0.60 on the dollar, they'll control $0.70 on the dollar. And I think the market senses this. And if you owned $100 worth of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google on January 1, you know, I think, are up 14 or 17% of the year. So the pandemic is a culling of the herd, and people are betting that the elephants that survive will have more foliage post uh, the the culling when the rains return, and the big tech will be big winners here. Amazon is about to announce the first sort of fully vaccinated supply chain through a massive investment in distancing protocols, additional compensation, And they'll really be the only firm in the world that can offer kind of end-to-end, near-COVID-free product services, vendors, which when you think about it is just a staggering opportunity, not unlike what Disney is trying to do with professional sports, bringing sports back to sort of a COVID-free environment in Orlando. So I think on a shareholder level, they win. In terms of San Francisco, I think there's been a reversal of this incredible trend over the last 30 years where human and financial capital have flown have fled into cities. Uh, As of January, there was estimated that two-thirds of all economic growth would happen in 20 super cities. That has probably been reversed. It's Mm -hmm. not that San Francisco and New York won't be great places to live or great places to do work. It's just they're likely going to see some cost pressure and housing prices come down. But the places that get crushed are the people who had to commute in uh, and have no reason to be in, uh, paying $1,000 a foot for a home in Greenwich, Connecticut, or Short Hills, If I can pay $300 a foot in any one of 100 different suburbs around the nation, I think those areas get just crushed.
1: So that stays with us, right? We've
0: seen it, you know, Scott, already from the big banks talking about, you know, not bringing workers back to the city and and creating shops outside, you know, in the suburbs. And the same thing, as you said, you know, Silicon Valley, Twitter saying, hey, you want to work from home permanently, that's okay. So that is a significant
2: shift going forward.
4: It is, although it's sort of there's a lot of celebration among big tech companies' employees about work from home. And yeah. the worry or the fear I see is that if Mark Zuckerberg can move your job to Denver, he's likely going to move it to Bangalore, India. Right. And that is the ability to put on a suit, put on you know uh, to look good, get ready, manage the interpersonal relationships, navigate them, motivate a team in person, FaceTime politics, whatever you want to call it at headquarters, is a skill. And to think that people are going to get to work from home and go to a low-cost environment for free is naive. This is going to be an opportunity for big tech to substantially reduce their human costs. And what we're going to end up with is the most valuable companies in the world with an even smaller full-time employee base. Keep in mind, the largest work-from-home company in the world right now is Mm -hmm. Uber. Mm -hmm. Is that a good thing? Seven million of their driver partners technically work from home, and as a result, Uber has been able to to skirt minimum wage and and health insurance regulations. So I think work from home is a double-edged sword.
0: I do want to ask about your piece in the Washington Post where you talked about creating a U.S. Corona Corps, you know, akin to the Peace Corps and some other missions missions that are out there. Tell us about that. I think it's really provocative and um, could be something that really could make a difference.
4: Well, I think there's a huge opportunity here, Carol. If you think about our economy is dependent upon pretty much, or our society to a certain extent, uh, is dependent upon the apex of the relapse in the fall or hopefully the lack thereof. And the flattening the curve, if you will, is simply a function of testing, tracing, and then isolation. And I would argue the weak link is tracing where we only have 2,500 tracers in the United States, mostly focused on foodborne illnesses and STDs. And it's estimated we need between 200,000 and 400,000 We also have about a third of the four million kids who are supposed to show up for freshman fall classes saying they're thinking about a gap year. So I wonder if there's an opportunity similar to the Peace Corps, similar to Mission, the Latter-day Saints, where we arm this kind of army of super soldiers who are largely, I don't want to say immune, but more resilient to COVID-19, train them in handheld technologies and create an army of tracers similar to what South Korea did to suppress the curve – And not only would we ideally suppress the curve, but maybe award them tuition remission, give them more opportunities for college. And as importantly, uh, the reason we were able to to pass such incredible groundbreaking legislation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is over somewhere between a half and two-thirds of our leaders, elected leaders, had served in uniform together where they put country in front of politics. And I think we need that sort of reunification, if you will and recognition that greatness is in the agency of others and I think it's time to have a core of young people right. who serve their country.
0: This has been episode 42 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. And thought tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19
1: was made possible by Discovery.